Hello and a very warm welcome to the Trap One Podcast. I'm Mark. I'm Keith. And I'm Brendan. On this episode, we're, talk- we're taking a look at Mark Gatiss's target novelisation of his 2013 episode, The Crimson Horror. You both count this as, one of, as your favourite 11th Doctor story. Um, so why is that, Keith? Um, I just love the Paternoster gang. I just love the Victorian setting. Um, I love Diana Riggs, so the three of them together is um, ideal for me. I love Mark Gatiss's writing. I've always liked his stories. I've never understood why people have a bit of downer on him. It's, um, it's incredibly... Uh, the language in it is lovely. It's incredibly camp. Um, it makes sense from start to finish, so it's a big favourite of mine. Um, for me, uh, Diana Rigg is a huge part of why it's my it's my favourite story. I think Diana herself said at the time, why has it taken so long for me to be in Doctor Who? You know, when <laughs> we had on a Blackman back in 1986. But um, something I also really love about it is I'm someone who finds Mark Gattis's Doctor Who writing sort of generally very steady and reliable, but it doesn't often um, trigger a big reaction in me until the Stephen Moffat era where I think just him and Stephen being very good friends and in simpatico um, just elevates it somehow. And I think this is Mark's best script for the show. And I also think it's very cleverly structured, but that does relate to how it's in the novel, so I'll elaborate on that later. So as we talk about the book, we'll be talking spoilers if you haven't read the book yet, and there are more spoilers than you would think in this book, uh, given that it's an adaptation of a TV story. (laughs) Um, Each of of this latest crop of books for the, the... the covering the stories from the 21st century series taken a different approach to expanding it. Uh, it's been really interesting reading uh, Dalek, The Witchfinders, and this one, um, seeing the, the very different approaches that each author takes. Uh, and this one is a very different approach, I think. You, you start reading the book, and you read a bit more, and then <laughs> um, you, you read a bit more, and you still haven't seen anything that you recognise. So you basically get a whole entire new story that takes up most of the first half of the book, don't we, which is set before the Crimson Horror, and in fact before A Good Man Goes to War or The Snowmen, um, and it, it documents the first time that Jenny meets the Doctor. During the All Britannia Aptitude Contest. Yes. That, was, that felt quite Terry Pratchett to me, um, kind of uh, taking something kind of that modern and doing a... Um, uh, a past setting, almost kind of steampunk version of it. Yeah, maybe. like yeah. A, yeah, yeah, sort of steampunk. It didn't feel like anything that would make it to the screen in in series seven A. I just wonder if it, it it had an idea that had been rejected. He thought, right, I'm getting it in here. Well, I wondered, given that the given that the sort of presenter of the All Britannia Aptitude Contest is a guy called Billy Skittles. Who, <laughs> it's a fabulous name. <laughs> he's not a million miles away from another Doctor Who impresario, is he? A veritable Victorian virtuoso, <laughs> Mr. Henry Gordon Jago. Um, it makes you wonder if originally he wants to use that character and that's why it's set around the music hall. Um, that, was, that was kind of what I was thinking while I was reading it. Man, he'd have lost his one arm joke if he'd have done that, wouldn't he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did, I did find myself thinking the same thing 
um, during that segment. And I wonder if it was a matter of, uh, this is one reference too far. And it's kind of like for the people who get the joke of using Henry Gordon Jago, they would spend the rest of the novelization wondering where's Henry? What's he doing? Why isn't this a Jago and Lightfoot story, etc.? Um, it it would have been perhaps lovely not to have named the impresario, but just written him as Jago. So and keep you guessing, yes, and keep you guessing. So uh, people who are familiar with Jago and Lightfoot would go, "I'm pretty sure that's meant." No, I'm meant to be imagining Christopher Benjamin. And people who don't know Jago and Lightfoot wouldn't be any the wiser. Because there is a coroner character as well, isn't there? Which who is in the TV story, but but could but could have been gently rewritten as well to be uh, Professor Lightfoot. I think it had to be considerably rewritten because the, uh, <laughs> the actual coroner is a fairly uh, a, a grim, gated character, isn't he? Sort of like almost from direct from the League of Gentlemen, who actually I adore that character. So <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. Um, the the new series because. You know, it's big on characterization. It's kind of rare that we get a character who's not part of the overarching plot and is just kind of there as a part for a character actor. You know, I'm thinking Bella Emberg in Love and Monsters is an example of that. Like, comes in, does her bit, and I can imagine we do see this character on screen, but as you say, it's so expanded here and he's got his ghoulish collection of souvenirs. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I, I sort of, I sort of had a visceral reaction reading that I squirmed in my chair a bit, which was lovely. Mando, I've got a friend who's a dentist and she has a collection of interesting teeth. So it's not too far from reality. No, I imagine not. Um, you know, I think if you go into sort of specialised medicine, not exactly that uh, an undertaker is in is in medicine, um, but you're either... I, I do know a podiatrist who literally just does it because it pays well, but you must also have people who are like, no, 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 I'm really fascinated by feet, and, you know, not, not, not in a <laughs> weird way, by the way, but... You know, I, I I love feet and the way they're put together and whatnot. So, yeah, th- this the undertaking... smell, the flakes. Oh, they're gorgeous. <laughs> Rejected cornflakes advertising slogans. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, um, as you say, Keith, it's a very Gator-style character. It's Gattis, isn't it? It's a very Gattis-style character, this um, this mortuary attendant, this... Well, no, Undertaker's the wrong word because they prepare them for funerals. He's um, a mortician, I think. No, he's, uh, he works for the... Uh, uh, for the... What's the word? Coroner. Coroner. Kind of, yes. yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and he's yeah. a morgue attendant, basically, isn't he? Yes, yes. Yeah, so maybe if he if he decided or that he he couldn't go with Lightfoot or decided not to, then creating this um, this much more bizarre character, um, yeah, is, is the way to go to totally differentiate. I suppose, isn't it? If uh, if the the working theory that you wanted to use to go Lightfoot is true, he's more or less the butcher from League of Gentlemen, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> 
the way the character played him on the television. Probably not not the same in the book, I don't think. Yeah, and I think that, like you say, the, the sort of League of Gentlemen stuff, like, um, so, I, so I said Gatiss, so we think it's Gatiss or Gatiss. I'm sticking to Gatiss and I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like, I, I, yeah, I can't actually um, hear anybody saying it now, like anybody here, like on Doctor Who Confidential or anything. I can't think how it is uh, how it's pronounced, but I must have heard it dozens of times. I wonder if he does any commentaries, because presumably he would introduce himself. <laughs> if he's yeah. about the only one who does these days. It's, uh, <laughs> he guarantee he'll do one for his own stories. It's, cause a lot of the uh, DVDs are sort of like commentary-free these days, but you can guarantee Mark Gatiss will do one if he's got a story there. We will uh, we'll, we'll have, to, uh, have to find this out and put it in the show notes, I think. Uh, but yeah, he's, he's, his love of this type of language really, really comes through throughout the whole book. Yes. He? He's so sort of steeped in it. Um, the, the the turns of phrase and everything like that. He's um, and if if you guys ever read any of the Lucifer Box novels that he did a few years ago, I only read the first one, but I think I think he did a series of three. I didn't know. Um, no. And they they are set in this this sort of time period as well, and he's, he's obviously got a real a real love of it. Um, His love of the Sherlock Holmes comes through as well because he has. Um... Uh, Watson always mentions the cases he's never actually talked about, and he does the same with increasingly bizarre titles. The yeah. one with the manganese teeth um, actually made me laugh, yeah. and the sentient Battenberg as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and isn't there one about a glass elbow? I think that yes. Strax referred to. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so uh, things like that uh, tickled me. And then there's uh, the chapter titles. There's uh, there's a study in crimson, isn't there? And mm-hmm. the um, one of the chapters starts with Jenny saying. Uh, I am the woman, uh, which is which is reference to um, I've forgotten the name. The uh, the woman in Sherlock Holmes. Yes, is... yes, it, it's gone out of my head too. I thought Vera Rosikoff, yeah. but no, that's Poirot. <laughs> we're, we're gonna, uh, oh, we're gonna have to look I it up. Know. I can actually see my uh, complete uh, Sherlock Holmes just. Just out of arm's length as well. I can't reach it without disconnecting everything. <laughs> <laughs> Is it it's I, Iris or I, Irene Adler? Irene. Irene Adler. That's it. Yeah, yeah. So that's like um, Jenny sort of putting herself in the place of the. Her, she's the Irene Adler to uh, to, to Madame Vastra. Um, but there's just words in here as well, which I I had to to look up. So, valetudinarian um, is dropped in, and. I'm a new Inesis. I don't know. I don't know if pronounce it. Right. It's just um, it's just littered with these really sort of archaic words uh, that are that are really lovely. Uh, I thought the um, yeah the language throughout is 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 brilliant. Uh, yes, uh, the approaching uh, ambushcade, I think, was one, yeah. and I'm like pretty sure that means ambush. And I, I was I'm reading on the the Kindle version because uh, the physical version I think only arrived in Australia last week. Uh, and I've sort of highlighted it, and it's like, definition of this word, ambush. It's like, okay. <laughs> On your mark. I did the talking book today, and having it read out was uh, even more uh, beautiful because you can sort of get the... Uh, uh, Kathleen Stewart uh, did the reading, and um, she's absolutely excellent with the uh, with the line reading of it, especially when she says lallies for legs and uh, fizz for... Uh, which was fizzog, which is for face as well, which I adored. And incidentally, her Madame Vasta is very good. 
Herr Matt Smith, however, leaves a little bit more to be desired. <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> Mind you, not, the Doctor's not actually in the main story that much, is he? So, no. And in I the th TV version, the book version, he's sort of um, frozen for a lot of it. Mm. So actually, mm. this um, sort of uh, initial story sort of gives him a bit more um, book time. Yeah, I think, and I was reading it going, what, what's, you know, I know this novel has to be expanded, uh, but what's all this about? And then I realised, well, yeah, hold on, he's basically not going to be in the middle of the book. Mm. <laughs> so I, I think it's so clever because what I loved about it when it was on television is that it is a two-parter, but part one is entirely told in flashback. And mm. does that Stephen Moffat thing of skip the boring bits and mm. just sort of give us the main plot points. Whereas with the novel, he adds an extra episode, but he, Mark is looking back to what made him fall in love with Target books. And as I'm reading this, all I'm thinking about is the opening of the Doomsday Weapon, where Malcolm Hook has to add in this whole backstory for Joe, for people... Yes. who haven't seen her on television, uh, you know, might have missed the season or whatever, because this is the first novel featuring Joe. This is the first novel featuring um, Vastra, Jenny and Strax. So as well as adding more Matt Smith time, it's there to introduce us to these three characters who, unlike, uh, say, Clara, they're not regulars, they're not in it week by week, so it is feasible that someone could have missed the episodes with them in. Mind you, listening to it, I genuinely forgot Clara was supposed to be in it because uh, she's not in the first story at all and she's hardly in the um, second one to uh, halfway through it. Yeah, I think if you counted her lines in this, you would probably um, stay south of 20. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, she's not the focus at all, is she? Um, really, because the, the majority of it is narrated by Jenny. It, it feels much more her story and, and her point of view. Um, which is quite a nice way of getting you into the, the Victorian setting as well. Um, it's quite a Victorian style as well, having it sort of like its reminiscences and uh, writing down things in retrospect. It's a very sort of, sort of John Watson or um, Jonathan Harker way of writing something, isn't it? Yeah, because we get the, um, we get the, the, the points of view of, of Jenny, um, uh, Jonas Thursday. You get some, a little bit of Strax and a little bit of the Doctor as well. So mm. it's uh, it's nice to have all those different different points of view, uh, and the Doctor's bits keep those because uh, where it was it was in series seven a it was like each story sort of had little elements of a different Doctor's era because you were into the fiftieth year by then and this was the one with a few references to the fifth Doctor wasn't it so he's he's kept a bit in about Tegan and added some other stuff about the Black Guardian in there as well. <laughs> yeah, I do think that um, when when he's talking about Tegan, there's an odd sort of thing of, you know, the TV version had that line of, I was trying to get this gobby Australian back to Heathrow, <laughs> uh, which is, is hilarious, and I remember squealing a bit on the sofa. But just before that line, Mark preempts it by basically making the same joke in prose. And... Yeah, I'm just like, oh, that's that's overegging it a tiny little bit, and you know, it could have been trying to get two school teachers back to London, 
well, I was only two years out, and then the and then the Tegan gag. I thought, mm. I thought that was a bit of an odd choice, and it's such a small thing, but it still sticks in my mind after reading it. That I'm just like, oh, okay. It ruins the joke as well because the joke of it is he he couldn't remember why she wanted to get back there, and um, but he's actually already said he did know why she wanted to get back there, so it ruins the joke entirely. That's a very she good says point. why, and she goes no idea. Well, of course he just said that he doesn't know, so uh, yeah, that rather spoils it. Mm, mm. Yes, yeah, I, that hadn't occurred to me, but yes, you're exactly right. That's that's why it doesn't work. Um, but one throwaway line I really did like, and I highlighted this one, is when Strax is talking about pocket universes and mentions even the little pocket ones where the laws of physics are suspended and strange things happen against a backdrop of black and white images of stately homes and topiary bushes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's lovely. Um, and I di- I, but one foreshadowing I did like is when... Uh, Vastra says to Strax, have you been eating this Jenny Sherbet fancies again? And we've already had this wonderful paragraph of Strax discovering Turkish delight. Yes. <laughs> and thinking it's a rootin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's such a, such a brilliant comedy character. And then see the, 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 the field reports from his point of view as well. And um, right, in the talking book rather nicely, they're read by Dan Starkey as well. Oh, brilliant. So his voice only pops in to read the field reports, which is rather nice. He's got about, I think, four little segments in it. Oh, fantastic. I'm, yeah, and I'm so stunned in those that they kept, that Mark decided to keep Thomas Thomas. Yes. (laughs) I'd have felt cheated if that not been there. (laughs) I suppose so. I suppose that, you know, for every every part in any Doctor Who story where someone sort of winces, there's someone else who, no, that's my favourite bit. And I remember feeling so bereft when the condensed reconstruction of Galaxy 4 came out and they cut my favourite bit, which is Vicky saying, I observed, I noted, I collated, I concluded, and then I threw a rock. Did they cut <laughs> that? Oh, my God. That's not in that- the, the the recon, No. Right, and we're sending the Aztecs back to the shop. That's outrageous. <laughs> it's like in the novelization of Resurrection of the Daleks, and um, Eric Saywood took out the, the line about, I can't stand the confusion in my mind. <gasps> heresy. I think my poor brain had given up by that point. <laughs> it, was, it had been so battered along the way, I think I just, uh, it just washed over me by then. Yeah, you needed we, a we, glass we, of Cool Spring Mountain Water. Yeah, yes. Or gin. Possibly a gin. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Cool spring mountain gin. I think you talked about the line about Thomas Thomas. That that is the style of this this first story, isn't it? About the the old Britannia aptitude contest. It's that yes, it's, taking uh, yeah. something from the, the modern day and then and then putting it in the in the style and and the, the, the lives of these characters. Um, but then the sort of the wider thing that that ties the two together is this James Bond Victorian kind of James Bond Spectre organization, the Cabal, um, which yeah reminded me of when this story came out. Um, friend of the podcast John Featonby was described this as sort of a steampunk Moonraker, um, and <laughs> this, this yes. puts it into a wider thing. We've got instead of uh, Spectre, we've got Cabal. 
um, which instead of the Special Executive for Counterintelligence, Terrorism, Revenge and Extortion, is Chaos, Assassination, Bedlam and Lies. <laughs> um, I think he's brilliant with it, with this sort of uh, Blofeld or Moriarty-like character. Uh, Dr. Brutus, Morganus, Porex, Cassivalonus, Dennis, Fetch. Um, I think he's, His he's fake arm's very Dr. No, isn't it? Yeah. I do also think... I even looked Fetch up in case it was a, like a character from literature I was missing, but uh, no, I think it's a genuine creation for this book, isn't it? Well, I thought that, yeah, it seems this, um, he's described in such uh, detail and, and he really glories in all that sort of stuff, but it's, it is the stuff that, that Markery likes as a writer, isn't it? It reminded me, um, you know, talking about the League of Gentlemen, um, you know the Christmas special where the, you, you learn about Dr. Chinnery's ancestor? Yes, yeah. Really Passing on like, the curse, yes. <laughs> yeah, it really felt like the tone of that to me. Um, we've got a special guest reading from Simon Fox, um, which is um, sort of part of the book which, uh, which relates to this character and his organisation. Somewhere across town, in a darkened room, a report was being made. The reaction, a hushed silence, interrupted only by a strange, low mechanical whir, was grim. The man known as Piccolo now lies in Pentonville Prison awaiting trial. Operation Castrato must be regarded as a total failure. He knows too much, said the strident woman with the Yorkshire accent. Agreed, said the whispery voice. He sang with the voice of God, but now he must be silenced. Permanently. Click. Were. See to it. Yes, sir. A deep sigh. And then... The Italian was thwarted by those women. You know the ones I mean. They have crossed our paths before. Kill them too, spat the woman. Perhaps, but perhaps we shall see how this develops. They may, in some strange way, prove useful. Useful? The whispery voice became a chuckle. Chaos, assassination, bedlam and lies. Cabal is absolutely named. We create a web of disinformation, a blurring of light and darkness, until no one can be sure of the very ground beneath their feet. Let us wait and see. The woman sighed impatiently. Is that all for today? I have a train to catch. I have plans afoot myself. Care to elaborate? It was the Indian's voice. All in good time, said the woman. Suffice to say that in my travels I have recently come across something which might prove very useful and which might very well alter the course of human history. A bold claim, said the whispery voice. I do not promise anything, yet. What is it then, came the other voice? Something from your chemical researches? Or from one of those little jaunts to the jungle which so preoccupy you? A little of both, perhaps. I have made the acquaintance of a new friend, she said, chuckling. The whirring click sounded again, and a match was struck, briefly illumining a puckered mouth and a long white beard as a cigar was lit. Well, well, whispered the owner of the beard. We all look forward to hearing more, I'm sure. 
He lit the cigar and sucked on it hungrily. You are always full of surprises, Mrs. Gillyflower. So thank you very much, Simon, for that reading. So yeah, what, what do we think of this sort of wider um, evil organisation in the background, which I guess may never get picked up again? I, I suppose unless the big finish um, Paternoster gang stories um, kind of carry the baton from here. You could argue it was perhaps a slightly um, um, obvious attempt at trying to link these two stories together other than because there's almost totally disparate plots otherwise, aren't they? So at least this way, there is a, a slight way to link the two halves of the uh, novel together. And it was so brazen, I actually quite like that. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, by the time we got to the end, uh, and I was getting to the end of the novel and thinking about us doing this podcast, I was thinking to myself, what do I think of the first half of this book? And then a reference to Cabal turns up at the end and I'd forgotten the Gillyflower sort of link from earlier on. I'm like, well, that's come at the perfect time. If I'm thinking about it now <laughs> and we, you know... And we... Fetch has sort of undermined Gillyflower, hasn't he? Because he sent um, the brother to the Paternoster gang. So in a way, that has sort of begun Gillyflower's downfall. So he, it is kind of linked tenuously. Mm. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, I, I wonder... I do, I do wonder where Gages is going with this in the future, if he's choosing to go somewhere with it in the future, or if he's hoping that, you know, in 10 years' time, a Doctor Who writer will pick it up and go, ah, yes, well, you know, Cabal also supplied um, lab equipment to Magnus Greel under the Palace Theatre. Yeah, what do you think about that? Um, I do also, and this is kind of really stretching it a bit, I wonder if this is some kind of long play and when we get Series 13 later this year, we're going to get a Paternoster gang story with Jodie Whittaker and Mandip Gill and that's going to involve uh, Cabal. And that would be that would be absolutely wonderful. I don't think they're going to do it because there hasn't been much coordination between the TV series and... Uh, the spin-off media in, you know, quite some time because they don't want people to have to buy one to understand the other. Uh, but it does it does make me wonder whether we might see Cabal again and in what form. Yeah, and I'd really like to uh, to, to see more of this. Um, it's, it's, it's such a cool idea. Um, and he's such an interesting character, um, Fetch, as well. It's like an um, evil Mycroft Holmes, isn't he? Sort of like not leaving the house, but he's sort of like he's the brains who sort of like uh, like organizes everything, but uh, is too lazy to do it himself. <laughs> yeah, you have to wonder if Mark wrote this part with himself smothered in latex in mind. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's the sort of um, character that he excels at, isn't it? <laughs> So who would you cast as Piccolo, then? Mm. Because as characters go, that's quite an interesting... A castrato with a device on his face for amplifying his voice. <laughs> to, to the extent that he can decapitate people. 
and be kicked in the balls with no effect. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's probably a first for a Doctor Who novel as well, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine Uncle Terence putting that bit in. <laughs> I, do, I do wonder, though, it's been a while since I read it, whether Pip and Jane Baker include uh, the master being kicked uh, in Mark of the Rani, or if that was an ad lib by Kate O'Mara. Yeah, I don't remember it being in the book, no. (laughs) No. (laughs) Um, Speaking of Uncle Terence, though, you you can see that Mark not only owes him a debt of gratitude, but pays tribute at several points in the novel, including um, the 11th Doctor becoming obsessed with the word capacious and wondering where he got that from, (laughs) which is lovely, like... um, Mark Gatiss, whenever he talks about Doctor Who, always talks about, you know, um, Terence Dix and Barry Letts and especially John Pertwee getting him into the series. You know, Mark owns the purple smoking jacket from Planet of the Daleks, for goodness sake. So he's we- he's not just wearing his love of Victoriana on his sleeve, he's wearing his love for Doctor Who on his sleeve. Um, and I think that's another reason I love this story on TV so much. The, this feels like an idea that Mark has had in his head, um, you know, for years, the way that he said The Unquiet Dead was. You know, he always wanted to do a story with a Victorian medium. Um, and also, I think, and this probably wasn't planned, like he probably didn't write the part for... Diana Rigg, but this feels so Avengers-like. I think it did. I think they'd worked together and uh, Diana Rigg said she'd wanted to work with her daughter. I think that's what inspired the idea. I might have got that wrong, but I'm fairly certain I've heard that. No, no, well, that would would make sense. Yeah, you certainly worked with one of them and and, and that's how it came about. Yeah. Mm. Um, and, And the nods there, I guess the Avengers are... You've got Jenny's, Jenny's cat suit. Cat suit <laughs> and then the Doctor wears a baller hat, doesn't he, when he arrives in Sweetville? Yes, he indeed. Does. Yeah. And yeah. I, I, I also think the whole, you know, um, having the Doctor sort of completely red and then revealing it in flashback, it's a very Avengers thing of, we're going to have this weird visual and then we're going to give you a perfunctory explanation, but the whole point is that these bodies are turning up red. We don't really care about the explanation all that much. It's it's like basically we're, wa- we're wrapping people in wax like they're a baby bell in order to preserve them. <laughs> but it doesn't I mean, really matter. People in a bell matter. jar is a very Avengers image as well. You can sort of kind of imagine that in a story. Yes, totally. And firing rockets out of chimneys. So, yes, it's, it has an Avengerish feel. Mm, mm, mm. We just need Linda Thorson in it now. She's the only one who's not done a Doctor Who, isn't she? Yes, God damn it, she's done Star Trek, but not Doctor Who. And she's over here, I think, so... Yes. Come on, get Linda Thorson in. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is, it's that blending of things, I think, isn't it, that, that Doctor Who does really well, and, and, and here it's... Yeah, it's, it's the mixture, the, the Bond stuff, the, the Victoriana, the, the, the Avengers... Um, the other sort of Bond thing I picked up on was um, there was a character called Sally Forth, which is a bit of a kind, yes. of, a, kind of a Bond girl <laughs> name, isn't it? Having a a name with another meaning like that. <laughs> so, what the uh, do you think about the, uh, the 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 contest? The the three judges obviously based on Simon Cowell, Louis Walsh, Sharon Osbourne. 
that feels like quite a dated sort of reference by now, doesn't it? Um, oh, I was thinking Amanda Holden. I didn't think of Sharon Osbourne. Oh, right, yeah. I mean, I suppose... I mean, it's just who you imagine, isn't it, really? They, I mean, it could have been either of them, really. It's Because it basically describes somebody who's had a lot of plastic surgery and has a What are you suggesting? <laughs> which I suppose applies fairly There's any equally. litigation going, it is Mark who suggested that, not the rest of us. <laughs> Both of them have entirely natural faces. <laughs> it, um, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm seeing a note of doubt there, Mark. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you're probably absolutely right. It's probably uh, it probably is um, Amanda Holden. Yeah, I was sort of thinking of probably a older kind of lineup. But I think uh, I think that is possibly um, as 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 you say, Keith, deliberately a a thing of. It could be it could be anyone like it's it's sort of an amalgam. And in a way, you know, when someone gets replaced on one of those talent shows, judge, they will often bring in someone similar in order to sort of transfer that person's fan base, because these shows, judges do have their own fan bases. Um, and you transfer that to a, a new kind of fan base. So it's 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 sort of archetypal in that way. Uh, now, the thing is, I, I have to confess, because, you know, I've been back in Australia almost 10 years now, you know, I did get that it's a a talent show reference, but not being sort of continually exposed to the British talent show scene, I, I, I did see these kind of people as archetypes. I think I picked the Simon Cowell one, just because... And uh, again, for uh, for litigious action, I'm going to be the one to say this. He's kind of a grotesque character, as as, as it is anyway. Um, so parodying him is not that hard, um, and is instantly recognisable. And the others are just like you know, any talent show, you've got the main judge who everyone knows, and then the rest. Yeah. Yeah, and Simon Cowell's done it in America as well, hasn't he? So he's mm. not he's, more uh, famous, I suppose. Yeah. Of, uh, yeah, ubiquitous and uh, yeah, yeah and more exposed like that. Yeah, because uh, we've got one of the acts is called Divertisement, <laughs> which yes. is the uh, the dance troupe uh, <laughs> yes. that won Britain's Got Talent called Diversity, weren't they? Yeah, I was over there when that happened. I think. <laughs> And one of them described as a unicyclist with uh, white face and circles on his cheeks. I wonder if that was supposed to be Jigsaw from the Saw movies. <laughs> or maybe I was just yes. reading far too much into it by then. No, no, I think you're right. I, th- I felt like there was also a bit of a, a swipe at, at fans as well when they described the people. Oh, the Arthur character, yes. They're the waiting at, the, um, <laughs> waiting at the, the stage door to try and meet the, the singer. Um, and he's sort of saying about the, the clothes that they wear and that type of thing. <laughs> <laughs> and well, you know, kind being a kid. yeah, being a devoted fan gets one of them killed. So you know, it's Mark saying, "Stop harassing me at my dressing room door, <laughs> or else." And Jenny saves the day with a fire extinguisher. I quite like that. And then the doctor, <laughs> the doctor puts a sock in it. <laughs> I, I I I hooted when I read that bit. <laughs> you know, it, it's it's such a wonderful 
it's a, it's such a wonderful simple solution and you know especially i think i think the problem is when you introduce characters like the paternoster gang and you know you've got vastra running around with a sword you've got strax with the guns and and, and triplamides and acid um <laughs> and you know jenny can also kick some serious butt um, the temptation is that they just solve problems with force, but Mark immediately sets them up to be cleverer than that because, you know, the new series makes a great deal of the tension between um, the Doctor's companions using force and the Doctor saying, no, 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 like, that is absolutely a last resort. We're, we're not going to do that. So... Yeah, for me, that was always a bit of a problem with um, with Torchwood, which I never particularly got into, um, was that, you know, it was more predicated on violence as, as a means of solving problems. And, um, you know, Russell T. Davies talks about the difference between writing for Doctor Who and Torchwood, and it's like, well, if you're going to have this Paternoster gang who are kind of a Victorian era Torchwood, but with more laughs, you know, you've got to balance that and consider, okay, but they're in Doctor Who. So we can't just, we can't show um, Vastra stabbing anyone. And, you know, when she talks about Jack the Ripper in A Good Man Goes to War and obliquely refers to eating him, you know, she's not like wiping blood off her cheek or anything like that. It's like, no, that's, that'd be too far, but we can, we can use words. And when we do show them, we, when we do show the violence, it's sort of cartoon Batman kind of violence. And even when Jenny is dispatching some of the, um, the Grimm's, I love that. I love the pilgrims are shortened to the Grimm's. Um, when, yeah, when she's dispatching them, the action is described in a very rapid way without dwelling on it. Yeah, definitely. And and the uh, the line about putting a sock in it is again, it's quite Bond, isn't it? It's quite it's Roger Moore era um, <laughs> Bond as a as a quip after uh, after bringing the uh, the the villain down. And they end up getting a box of chocolates from the Pope. <laughs> Yeah, and the, the 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 Prince of Wales, well, who the Doctor knows, um, that's quite a nice sort of uh, name dropping sort of thing of of uh, speaking of of other adventures that that we haven't seen, because uh, obviously recognises him in this incarnation as well. Mm. And not only that, but of course, by the point that Mark has written this, Matt Smith has played Prince Philip. Of course, yeah. Oh yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, obviously not Prince George. And I was reading that imagining Hugh Laurie. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah that's, uh, that's a good point. Because one of the characters is, uh, sorry, one of the chapter titles is that, I, was, I meant to look this up, is it a Billy Piper song? Um, which one is it? Is it like Sweet sweet for My Sweet or something? It's, no, Sweets to the Sweet. Maybe it is. Maybe I'm thinking of something else there. I seriously wouldn't know. It's not my type of music. No, I've, I mean... Uh, <laughs> I am, I'm going to go through the chapter titles right now and and have a look. I'm probably... No, it's Honey. Some, it's, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm miles off. Uh, forget that. It's, it's something to do with Honey, isn't it? The, the Billy Piper song. So the, uh, the Billy Piper song is um, Honey to the Bee. 
Right. Yeah. So yeah, I saw the sweets to the sweet, and I was thinking, is that a bit of yeah. song? But yeah, I'm just. Uh... Well, there there is a um a song that goes sweets to the sweet sugar for my honey. So right. it probably is a reference to that song. Right. Yeah. Mm. Um. The the other thing that. Mark Gatiss does is um, refers to a plant as the Dame's Rocket because of right, course and you've got Dame um, Diana Rigg yeah Dame Diana Rigg yes um, and yeah because you know Mrs Gillyflower isn't a, isn't a Dame but yes Dame um, Dame Diana yeah I missed that entirely no I didn't <laughs> <laughs> yeah I had not learn I bet I bet yeah whatever you kind of um, specialist knowledge like if you if you know Sherlock Holmes inside out I bet there's a ton of references that you would you would pick up on in here mm. um, and, there's and, a Talon's reference as a uh, a toothless crone by the murder victim <laughs> yeah and, he, and unfortunately he, that's my level <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Um, and, and also, he, he mentions oh, he, in the in the doctor's um, sort of stream of consciousness um, sections where he mentions the giant rat as well, doesn't he? He does. There's the thing about the giant rat of Sumatra, like it's a tale that can't be told, and he sort of says that story can't be told as well, doesn't he? So, <laughs> um, so something else I love about the sort of references and the style of this is there is a moment in her narration where Jenny acknowledges, yeah, there's going to be bits I wasn't present for. Well, I was told about them later and you need them to understand the story. So <laughs> and it, I'm being author she says. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, you know, it, feel, it feels like Mark saying, yes, fine, I can't do a whole first person narrative for this. Shut up. I know. <laughs> And I love the bit in the uh, in Stephen Moffat's novelization of There the Doctor where they, the way they get around that is um says you'll notice that sometimes the doctor um sort of invents an inner monologue for another character or something. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, it it even makes me think of David Whittaker's novelization of the Daleks where Ian says, Barbara told me later that this happened. Um <laughs> Or even Susan mentioned. Susan mentioned. <laughs> even um, yeah. the mysterious planet, the fir- the first part of Trial of a Time Lord, where Colin Baker stops the action to say, "Hold on, how is this being recorded?" Yeah, <laughs> and it's like you know, no casual viewer is asking that question <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because they haven't asked for twenty two seasons. But Colin's like, <laughs> "No, I've met fans now at conventions, and we need to cover this." <laughs> Um, and by the way, aren't I president? Yeah. <laughs> oh, bless him. Um, yeah, it, it's funny. It, and of course, Mark being a fan would think of that. I did actually meet Mark once shortly after Victory of the Daleks went out. And Did you ask him how to pronounce his name? No, I didn't. That's unfortunate. That is unfortunate. Um but I did I did mention to him that I actually quite liked the new Dalek designs. And his response was, yes, thank you. People seem to forget that I wrote the script, not designed the characters. <laughs> and he, says, it's, he said, it's slightly frustrating because I thought it was a good script. And I said, I enjoyed the script as well. He said, oh, thank you very much. And then I said, Matt, can I pet your dog? Because he had a beautiful golden retriever. Um, oh. Yes. And it's it, you know I'm I I am the person at the party. Oh, there's an animal, right? I'll be over here. 
Um, but yeah, like, you know, he does consider that. And we're, we're sort of in on that joke because we're like, yes, we are obsessed with these details. And yes, we probably shouldn't be. But yes, thank you very much for catering to our obsession and weirdness. And even the character of Sally Forth is like that as well, isn't she? She's got that <laughs> uh, obsessive knowledge of the, the Britain's Got Talent, whatever, music hall show. Um, I've written Victorian Super Geek. Yes. Yeah, and even the, um, the, the thing we said, I couldn't go that night, so I, I recorded it. And, and Bastry was recorded it. She goes, oh, yeah, I've got this guy who's got a... Uh, um, like a memory a, man, yes. Yeah, a memory man. He can just remember the details of everything. Yeah. I, I, I actually yeah. have to wonder if that, if that is also a specific reference to um, Toby Haydoke who um, in his one-man show, he does this bit where he's got the Doctor Who program guide and he gives it to someone in the audience and says, turn to any story, go to the cast list and point to a name, an actor's name, and I will tell you what part they played, not only in that story, but if they appeared in (laughs) another story. (laughs) Uh, And he, 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 he... I listen to his podcast, and uh, as he's waxing there, he does commentaries. And as he's waxing directly, he's, he's, his knowledge is encyclopedic. Largely when people died. He's uh, <laughs> vaguely obsessed with death, unfortunately. We can be a bit grim sometimes, but uh, <laughs> no, he's, uh, he's a splendid fellow, Toby Haydock. I admire him greatly. Oh, yes. Yeah, he writes a lot of obituaries now as well, doesn't he? Yes, yes that's that's he's very obsessed with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Although he did wish me happy birthday yesterday, so... Oh, that was nice. He was, yes. Oh. Yeah, so um, Keith turned 50 yesterday. Uh, <laughs> and the, uh, yes, uh, today, as we record, is the 10th anniversary of the Paternoster Gang. Uh, so that would have been the, the broadcast of A Good Man Goes to War. That's the first story, wasn't it? Mm, mm, mm. It was, yes. It's funny, because you can't even imagine they were in it more than that, but they didn't actually do that many stories. Is it about five they did? Yes. Yeah, so yeah, you got Good Man Goes to War, The Snowman. Snowman. Yeah, this, this one, one. There was Deep the uh, name of the Doctor. Um, name yes. of the Doctor. And then Deep Breath, yeah. and that's literally it, wasn't it? Deep Breath, yeah. Mm. Yeah, five, yeah, five it's episodes. When you've got those, yeah, when you've got those really memorable characters, they, they cast a longer shadow, don't they? Um, mm. It's like every time I watch Talons of Wen Chiang, I'm always surprised how late in the story Jago and Lightfoot meet. Yes. Because, um... You can't imagine they're together all the time, don't you? No, they seriously yeah. weren't, yeah. It's, uh... Yeah, when something just works like that, they, um... They, they seem to have a bigger presence, don't they? Which, another reason, it's quite nice yeah. to have another story with them in this, really. Yeah. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, and especially... Uh, a lot, a lot of people have sort of commented on the the power imbalance in the relationship between Vastra and Jenny. Um, being that Jenny, you know, is... And you're never quite sure watching it on screen, okay, is she just posing as the lady's maid or is she actually the lady's maid but also in a relationship with her mistress? And what does that mean? Whereas this novel makes it very clear that they are they are intellectual equals and they are equals in their relationship. But Jenny also just happens to work around the house. And I I think it does a lot to empower 
Jenny's character a lot more. I think making oh, her Jenny's the point... story, definitely, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it, Mark Gatiss does that by making her the focus character. Um, and it also addresses a moment which has been controversial, which is the snog, the kiss. <laughs> and I, th- I think I, I was interested to see how Mark would handle that, because it's funny, at the time I first watched it, um, that was a blink-and-you-miss-it moment for me. But mm. pe- seeing people, especially women, talk about it online, it's like, um, actually, yeah, he does force a kiss on her. And she is a married woman. And not only that, but as far as we know from the text, a lesbian, like not a bisexual woman. And this, you know, this novel makes it clear, oh, yeah, she can notice a pretty man, but it does nothing for her. Um, but I absolutely love that Jenny's like, yeah, look, I'm very happy to see you as well. And I understand you're very happy to see me, but also I didn't ask for this and I'm going to smack you now. And I think the other temptation would have been to cut that moment altogether. And um, I think that would have been a mistake because this way Mark is instead acknowledging, you know what, this is something I either didn't think about or there was no spot to really put what Jenny was thinking in the text and I'm going to redress that now. And I compare that to something like um, Nigel Robinson uh, writing the Underwater Menace novelization, And there is a moment where Polly is panicking, trying to get out of the cave towards the end. And I think I'm getting this verbatim. Jamie slapped her hard across the face that shut her up. And from what I can tell from the reconstruction and the audio, that's not in the story. I don't remember that being there, no. No. So it's been added for the novelization in 1988. It's like, what? <laughs> so comp- compare and contrast <laughs> this moment from Mark going, okay, let, let's get the woman's perspective on this moment and make it a moment to talk about consent in these situations without changing the tone of the scene. I think it's a very deft piece of writing. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's it's interesting when, when when those things, yeah, like you say, they they kind of noticed afterwards. Um, yeah, how the uh, how the writer because the the other one of his stories, even quite dead, um, which people have noted afterwards, the, the sort of connotations uh, about immigration and refugees and things. I don't think mm. it would be interesting if he ever novelized that one. Um, how he would interpret that and and um, and, and maybe uh, address that as well. Yes, absolutely. Hopefully, he'll hope, hopefully he'll do some more. And um, and I was said you know around his uh, his love of this era and the language, and all the kind of Dickensian stuff from that. I'd be I'd love to see that one novelized. Mm. And you've got to think he'd be keen to do some more as well. He's he's you know he is of that that um, that era of growing up on these books forged in the, targets. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he did the the reading for Planet of the Daleks, didn't he, for the for the audio Oh, that's lovely. Yes, yes. yeah, it's yeah, I've absolutely got brilliant. Straight. Yeah, very. I good. think it's one of my favourite audios because uh, uh, re- he reads it be- uh, beautifully. Uh, the novel's great, and the sound effects and everything absolutely perfect as well. It's uh, it's a classic one. Mm. Yeah, but Pertwee is one of the doctors where the narrators always have such a a loving take on his voice. 
And it really comes across when Mark is giving it his Pertwee in that, that, yeah, he absolutely loves his character. It's, it's an impersonation without being a parody, which I think is lovely. I mean, I've read the books of Pertwee long before I saw him on television, and I was actually quite disappointed by the television versions because the books were so uh, so much more concise, to be fair. So, <laughs> And I, I nearly said better, but I resisted the answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, that, that's the thing. Like, most people I record Flight Through Entirety with um, have that experience as well, where generally... Um, they would read the book of a particular story before they necessarily saw it on television, whereas I had the reverse experience, because by the time I came to Doctor, it was being constantly repeated on the ABC. I think the only difference is I read Hartnell novels before I saw any Hartnell. Um, And what struck me there was, you know, I read stuff like The Edge of Destruction, which has a lot more going on, and then you see it on TV, and it's like, where's the engine room? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because I, I was thinking, how are they going to do this? And it's like, they're not. That's total invention. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's it's always interesting to hear, Keith, from people who read the novels first and what impression they had. Um, because I also own the the Japanese translations. They did five Target novels translated into Japanese. And... I think didn't have much in the way of reference material because, um, like, the Daleks are totally... Well, not totally different, but so different that you can imagine, yeah, if you just read a description of them, that is what they would look like. Um, The illustrations are quite bizarre, aren't they? Yes, yes, absolutely. And, you know, it's things like the third Doctor looks like Peter Davison. So maybe they did have some visual (laughs) reference material. Um, and the police box is a phone box. It's <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they're extraordinary, extraordinary illustrations. And, uh, yeah, I have to wonder, I suppose in this age, if you're buying the Crimson Horror and, say, you were a six-year-old fan who watched it in 2013 and you haven't watched it since, the thing is you, it's very easy to get access to now. Whereas, yeah, not so much for us. Like, I think when I read The Edge of Destruction, it was another 10 years before it was released on VHS. That's, uh, that's videotape. So who do you think these are marketed at, then? That's a good question. Um, I think it's, it's us, isn't it? I think it's, it's the fans that know and love the stories. And what we're looking for are these extra layers. So here it's the, it's the whole new story. In Dalek, it's the... Um, I don't know if you've read this yet, but there's a lot more detail on... Endless character studies, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, endless, uh, endless character studies. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, I, I thought it was brilliant because each of these, they're very, very dark sort of vignettes for, for, for each one, aren't they? I ended up skipping um, them and just cutting to the dark. <laughs> 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 yeah, I thought, I'm not really bothered to getting to know these people because you're going to be dead in the two minutes, so... <laughs> <laughs> Um, but and then with uh, with the the witchfinders, there's a, a, a sort of a framing device which which adds uh, a new level of, of sort of suspense because you it's it's sort of 
set after the book, but you get these little uh, little piece, bits and pieces. Of, yeah, the same thing is happening again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I suppose that's the problem with these... Well, problem is perhaps too strong a word. But with these new series novelizations, either you have to add a lot of character information, which I know, for instance, is something the novelization of Rose does, mm. or you need to extend the action, which is what this novel does. But this novel also sort of acknowledges by the time the Doctor appears, it wraps up very quickly because there's a ticking clock. So rather than extend that action, Mark introduces this whole other story with, as you say, Keith, the very tenuous link of the Cabal organisation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, it's kind of like, going forward, if we do get more of these new series books, um, it, it's sort of Mac Hawk used to say, well, you've got two stories. You've got Alien Invasion or Mad Scientist. It's like, you've got two approaches. You've got slow the action down or give us lots of internal monologue. <laughs> And I think, or a brand new story, or a brand new story. <laughs> yes, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, three options, I suppose. And I think maybe the brand new story is the best option because it gives the book a unique selling point. But at the same time, you're sort of going, okay, when does the episode start? On the uh, the talking book version, there's four discs, and the actual story starts on track 15 of disc two. So basically, <laughs> you, it's uh, like two and a half, uh, two and a third discs to the actual story. Wow. <laughs> Which is fundamentally a big finish, isn't it? So. <laughs> I did love that. Just it was so unexpected starting to read it and then not getting into the story, uh, the story that we know, and, and then getting this other story. Um, I thought it was a really kind of bold move and, and, and really, really enjoyed oh, I, that. I loved it. it. Was... I thought it was so wonderfully brazen. I thought this is, mm. this is really going to irritate some people, which made it even more pleasurable in a lot of ways. <laughs> 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 it is a shame that Uncle Terence never survived to do one of these, though. I mean, so lovely to have his take on a... Like, he did a two-parter modern story just to see how he would have written it. Yeah. As a, in classic Target fashion. Yeah, that would have been lovely. I think because the nearest he got was those, um, for the modern series, those quick reads. He did some David Tennant ones, didn't he? He did, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think so, two or three of those, yeah. I do feel it's kind of strange that um, it it's taken so long to get novelizations of the new series stories. Um, I, I think there was a script book of the first series and it sold very badly. And I think that really put them off. Right. Yeah. yeah, I had that book. I've, yeah, mm. it's looking at me now. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it it didn't do as well as... Because, I mean, Doctor Who Merchandise was huge then, wasn't it? So mm. it did less well than other stuff. So I think that pulled them off rather. Yeah. And then because they've discontinued the original novels the for the current Doctors, haven't they? Have they? Those... I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, I didn't. I Just something I discovered fairly recently. So the three sort of hardbacks, sort of small format hardbacks that mm. would come out every year. Um, have now been discontinued. So, yeah, it's sort of weird that there's an appetite for novelizations of TV stories that have been on. There's more of an appetite for that than there is for original fiction with the current Doctor. Mm. The, uh, yeah. It's, uh, it's, yeah, that seems really strange, but I guess it's the... I suppose it'd be interesting if you could find a way of breaking it down. How many people who've come to the, ser- to the Doctor with the new series are buying the novelizations? Because that... 
to to a younger audience must seem like such a weird concept because like you say mm. these uh, especially since the 13th Doctor came along in the UK the all of modern Doctor Who has been on the iPlayer permanently hasn't it for like three years so it's very much um, you know no charge at the touch of a button you can access any of these stories so uh, I guess for somebody who, who's grown up with the modern series, it's quite a weird concept. I think why why would I go and buy a book of it? Um, whereas the uh, the twentieth century fans who've already got a big collection of Target books potentially and and want to keep that collection up to date, mm. there's an impetus there, isn't there, to uh, and a nostalgia value. The well. completest gene. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And to be honest with you, I've only bought digital versions so far. Because my whole thing with buying the physical versions is, well, what if they don't do all of them? <laughs> you know? I don't want another does, pirate... <laughs> yeah. I don't want another pirate planet situation for 40-odd <laughs> <40 odd> years. <laughs> it would take them all, even. I suppose even if they stop making Doctor Who... It's going to take them a long time to catch up at a rate of sort of three a year, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, not even three a year. It's two years since the last lot, isn't mm. it? And I think that's the other problem possibly preventing them from doing it is that we don't have a Terrence Dix for this generation of novels who can willingly churn out 10 to 12 a year because, you know, the sort of the writer first refusal goes to the original scriptwriter. They're highly in-demand writers. Um, so the budget probably doesn't exist, unfortunately, <laughs> for them to do um, 12 of these a year. Uh, and I think, yeah, the key would be finding a writer who was willing to do it for a lower price. But, you know, when you look at, the times where Terence was churning out um, 10 books a year and the quality drops. Mm. And, and I, uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure we really want that. You know, a writer who immediately springs to mind, who I think would be brilliant for the job would be Joe Lidster, who wrote a lot of, um, incidental and surrounding text for the Russell T Davies era, but at the same time, I wouldn't want to see Joe exploited and underpaid. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, yeah, that's the dilemma, I suppose. They go, Mark, it's time to volunteer. But, uh... <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess I guess what they're relying on uh, to some extent would be. You know, somebody like Mark Gatiss thinking, "Wow, I get to write a Target book that that mm. I grew up on." So even if he's if he's uh, getting significantly below his sort of market value for it, there's a cachet for uh, for a lifelong Doctor Who fan, isn't there, of um, uh, of writing one of these? Yes, that's very true. Yeah, because uh, you can imagine Pete McTeague um, wanting to uh, adapt his because uh, I know he's a big Target collector. Um, I remember an article that he wrote where he collected them all and collected all the variant covers and then collected them all in hardback as well. So uh, <laughs> you, you can imagine he'd be fairly keen to, uh, to you know, to adapt Kablam or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd, I'd love to read those. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. And Kablam would be another interesting one given some of the criticisms of that story as well. Um, you know, whether that was, uh, you know, to if he wants to sort of... Uh, address that, you know, with what his original intent was or anything. Mm. 
Yeah. So, any what would be your your picks for new series adventures to be novelised next? Ooh. You go first, Keith. I'm having a think. Because I'm, I'm quite uh, geeky in my outlook. I like to have in my novels to have all the Doctor's introductory stories and regeneration stories would be quite nice because if ever electricity goes down and I have to just, like, rely on my books for the rest for all eternity, it'd be quite nice to have the stories <laughs> introduced and uh, exited the Doctor. So maybe Deep Breath would be a choice? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd love another one by Stephen Moffat because um, Day of the Doctor was, was, was fantastic. I, uh... And possibly End of Time? Hmm. So just because then you've got uh, we've already got some entrances we've got we've got uh, Rose and Christmas Invasion so and we've sort of like we've got uh, the twelfth Doctor's exit haven't we so a few more entrances and exits will do me very nicely <laughs> and then when civilization ends and we're all eating baked beans out of tins at least I'll have my uh, complete set of Doctor Who stories to uh, read through. <laughs> um, I think I would quite like something like Fear Her. Um, because, you know, that were, it was sort of cut and slashed and cut and slashed. Um, the budget wasn't there, really, was it? The, yeah, yeah, the budget wasn't there, and it was this weird mixture of a very fantastical story with the deliberate effort to make it look very real and gritty that doesn't quite come off. And I'd be very curious to see what could be done um, with a novelization of that, because it's a story that I've I've often thought the central concepts of this are really good. Why am I not having fun when I'm watching it? Um, that wardrobe should have been as focus of fear, shouldn't it? it? Was like permeating through the building. That thing is going to burst out, and it didn't really pay off, did it? So yeah, mm, mm, the, you know, the father in there. Yeah, it puts me in mind of the first Sapphire and Steel story, which you know, I was just thinking Sapphire and Steel. Yes, <laughs> so yeah. yeah was made so much longer before this and yet is has so much more atmosphere. Um, and I think you could really go to town on that in, in a novel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I would read Fear Her. Yeah, I, th- I think, yeah, I'd be attracted to something like that as well. Even like Power of Three, the way that, um, you know, when you, you hear some <laughs> of the behind-the-scenes story had to be yeah. uh, massively um, re-edited because of... Have trouble, uh, except with, the guest star. Uh, yeah. yeah, 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 with the guest star, the, the, with the guest star. So that it's, um, yeah, it's sort <laughs> see of how it should very, have finished. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, just kind of choppy and and um, yeah, kind of perfunctory sort of ending. So yeah, the going back to the original scripts and, uh, um, but then yeah, a mixture of that kind of thing. But like you say, the big stories as well. Uh, you know, I like the eleventh hour. Mm. Um, you could do some some interesting stuff with that as well, especially because, you you know, the missing time from Amy's point of view and all that kind of stuff. You could... And it's an introductory story, so yes, go go for that one. <laughs> <laughs> and something like Blink would be very easily expandable, like with, with what we were talking about earlier, of there are only certain ways to expand the story. Well, you've got um, Kathy's story, you've got Billy's story being back in time, um and I think you could add in those character vignettes without um, that problem you were mentioning with Dalek, Keith, where it's like, no, no, I just want to get to the action now, please. Mm. Oh, dear, you've had a tragic life, and now you're about to die. What a pretty <laughs> Next one. I do remember Rob Sherman yeah. saying at a convention once that um, 
a particular one of the technicians was the person who leaked um, the fact that the Dalek was back to the the newspapers. Um, and uh, I, I wonder if in the novel he has a rather more grisly fate. Because, <laughs> because Rob Schumann knew exactly which one of the extras it was. And then, and then the guy uh, was blacklisted by production, but got himself a new talent agency and was back on Parting of the Ways Bad Wolf until someone recognised him. <laughs> and he was escorted <laughs> from the set. Uh, Does he have a really unflattering description as well? <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's With what I'm wondering. With his and his limp, he... <laughs> <laughs> his buck teeth shone in the Dalek's light. <laughs> um, yeah, I... I just go back to the um, any future target novelizations. I'd, I'd love Stephen Moffat to do another one because I loved the way he, in the day of the Doctor he sort of filled in the scenes that we didn't see that you yeah, like where he actually steals the moment and that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, that's any of his stories where he could write them in that sort of style. I'd, um, I'd love to get some more of that as well. Oh, and by the way, the actual writing, the Crimson Horror in the story is quite good as well because we haven't actually discussed the writing of the. Uh... Actual crimson horror story, have we? <laughs> no, it's it's a fairly sort of straight yeah. telling, isn't it? Yeah. Um, although we're getting it from the, the the different characters' points of view, um, it's it's pretty much as seen on the screen. I think there's, yeah. there's very little difference. Yeah, like mm. it very good. Next, <laughs> <laughs> um, I w- I will say that one one character who comes a- across particularly well in the way that Mark writes it is um, Ada. And it could just be because I'm imagining Rachel Sterling's performance and she's fantastic. But uh, a point of difference I did notice is that um, on screen, uh, Ada destroying Mr. Sweet is very much played for laughs. Whereas here in the novel, it does... it. It does feel like it has a bit more dramatic weight to it, and I think I think the big change is that rather than Ada just walking off at the end as she does on screen, um, in the in the prose, after she's finished, she throws her cane away and collapses and bursts into tears. And I feel I feel like that's um, that sort of marks moment of when Terence uh, decides that actually the um, the D grades of the Sunmakers quite regret um, throwing Gatherer <laughs> Hade off the roof. <laughs> uh, and and the thing is though that 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 moment has the tension of it's Terence rewriting Robert Holmes, and Robert Holmes is probably like no 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 chuck chuck the bugger off the roof I don't care. Uh, whereas here uh, with Robert Holmes, <laughs> yeah. Here, I think Mark is sort of addressing this doesn't work as a sight gag in a novel, so I'm going to give it a different emphasis. Uh, but yeah, as, as you say, aside from that, it's it's basically a line from line retelling, and it's like Mark is actually more interested in telling the new story he's come up with, that wonderful story in the theatre. Um, and But then <laughs> it's kind of like by the time we get to the Crimson Horror, he's like... Well, yeah. you know, you've already bought it, so mm-hmm. <laughs> enjoy. I always write notes before a podcast, and I've got four pages on the first story, and I've got one page for the Crimson Horror. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the other bit that you say about um, about Ada is the there's more of a description of how she saves the Doctor, mm. 
and uh, justifies sort of locking takes, him in a cupboard. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and and sort of takes care of him and and. Um, confides him and, and, and that type of thing. She so kind of gets away with flushing away all the victims, though, because it's fundamentally her that's done it. Mm. 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 So she's actually a party to murder, isn't she? And she's kind of let off that. Well, she's not kind of, she's entirely let off it. Yes. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it is, it is kind of odd that there's not even really, really a discussion about that. You know, even mm. even even a well, you know, if if she hadn't have done this, her mother just would have killed her. You know, but there's no actual threat there, is there? No, no. Um, you know, not like she, Mrs. Gillyflower uses Ada as as a human shield, but that's it's sort of a it's sort of a last resort thing. It's realizing oh, prior to her losing faith in her mother, she's still quite prepared to to join the chosen ones and like. Uh, into her own bell jar, let the rest of uh, people get uh, killed, basically, isn't she? So. Yes, yes. Yeah, and, and even during the events of the story, she says, I, I, I can't betray my mother still, um, when they're, they're trying to find out who Mr. Sweet is. Mm. Um, she says, no, I can't, I, I still can't betray her. So, yeah, there is a... Yeah, I never noticed that. The way it's written, it, it's, it's so sympathetic towards her. And she went on to become Jack the Ripper. <laughs> <laughs> And you know what? It's it's kind of odd that moment of I can't betray my mother to Mister Sweet because we get a bit of her internal monologue, and the reason she can't say who Mister Sweet is is she's never met him and doesn't know. Yeah, she what simply he doesn't is. know. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but then she's like, I can't betray my mother. It's like, well, just just say I've never met him. That's not betraying yeah, so anything. She's got suspicions or something because she's heard noises and and uh, slurping. Yeah. Yeah, kind of suckling noises and things. So it's as though she knows he's some kind of creature. Mm, yeah. mm, mm. Or just rubbish with soup. She's no idea, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wonder if there's any connection between the fact that Mr. Fetch eats very thin soup and Mrs. Gillyflower eats very thin soup. Probably mm, not. Yeah. Probably not. Yeah, and, you know, with, with the Blofeld comparison... For the first four James Bond films, Bond has no idea Blofeld exists. No, and we only see his hand, don't we, stroking stroking the cat and hear his voice? Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, because the Doctor, at the very beginning, he knows that there's something going on, doesn't he? He suspects uh, there's some malign force. And he's saying about these these things that sort of history turns on, and he names all these things, and he goes Brexit. Yeah. <laughs> <And> <laughs> it's sort of Sherlock Holmes describing Moriarty, though, isn't it? He's, he, he suddenly be, randomly became aware of this person in the background pulling the strings and being evil, even though he's never mentioned him previously until that story. Mm. Yeah, mm. the mm. spider in the web or mm. something, isn't it? Um, but the way the way that Brexit was in italics, it made me imagine Matt Smith. Delivering the line like when he says Twitter, yes. um, <laughs> in um, the Bells of Saint John, yeah. with a sneer, mm. with contempt, mm. as, it, as it should be. Yeah. yeah, and and especially considering, sort of, if you were to do a novelization of the Beast Below, I think Stephen Moffat would totally say, "Yeah, Brexit was the beginning of this. This is why Scotland has its own spaceship." Yeah, yeah. Oh God, you could um, you could do so much with that now, couldn't you? 
that there was a European space fleet or something. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's the thing. I think watching the Beast Below, it's like, well, hold on. Why, why was the UK left behind? And, you know, you fast forward six years and it's like, oh, right. Orcs. Yeah. We've got a world-beating space. <laughs> I did like uh, when, when Strax is climbing the tower. And Thomas Thomas calls out, you can do it, Potato Man. <laughs> and Strax makes a mental note that he'll have to execute him later, unfortunately, for that remark. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, we, we, we don't see Thomas Thomas again. Mm. I'm just saying. <laughs> and, you know, he we've also... murdered by Ada. <laughs> we've also discovered that uh, anything can be melted down and fed into Strax's probic vent, including horses. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a fun payoff for the fourth horse this week, and I'm, <laughs> I'm not even hungry. <laughs> <sighs> On that bombshell, <laughs> that's our show. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank, thank you for taking the time. Uh, if you'd each like to let our listeners know where else uh, we can find you on the internet and on the podcast. Well, I'm one of the few people on Twitter who doesn't have a podcast, <laughs> and I can be found under 50DW50. Um, I have far too many podcasts. Uh, <laughs> uh, being Flight Through Entirety, which is um, a flight through enti- the entirety of Doctor Who. Uh, at time of recording, we have just released our episode for The Big Bang, um, the first Matt Smith finale. There is also Bond Finger, which is an increasingly drunken and esoteric um uh, parade through Bond films, but we ran out of Bond films, so we're now doing uh, Bond-adjacent stuff, which tends to be a lot of the Avengers and the new Avengers. Um, and also Jodie Into Terror, which is our flashcast as Jodie Whittaker episodes are released. But on Twitter, you can find me at Brandy Bongos. <laughs> Same on YouTube, by the way. Thank you very much. Uh, you can follow the podcast at Trapon underscore. I'm at Quark McMalis. Uh, you can find all our previous episodes at trap1.podbean.com or on your podcatcher of choice. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>